Let's talk about that speech with Claire and Rachel. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Let's Talk About Speech podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Claire. And we are back for another episode. Last week was all about visuals and how important they are. And this week, we are back to talking about sensory needs. So if you guys haven't listened to our first sensory episode, quick, go listen and then come back. But this episode is really special because we have a very special guest joining us today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So today we have Rebecca Duval Scott as our very special guest. She's the author of Sensational Kids, Sensational Families, Hope for Sensory Processing Differences. It's a wonderful memoir about her son, family, and their journey learning, understanding, and living with sensory processing disorder. Uh, we connected with Rebecca a while ago over Facebook, and we've really been looking forward to talking with her and been looking forward to having you guys listen to this episode. So Rebecca, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Could you start maybe by telling us just a little bit about yourself? Sure. I appreciate being here as well. So thank you for asking me. Um, I was a behavioral therapist for children with autism before my son got diagnosed with sensory processing disorder. And later he has added the diagnosis of ADHD. And um, he was diagnosed at age three. And at that time I had given up my work to stay at home with my children. And uh, lucky thing I did, cause it took all of my time and energy and heart, you know, to help him. So when he got diagnosed at three, we spent about seven years of intense biomedical intervention, occupational therapy intervention, and really honing some mindset shifts that helped our family survive the diagnoses and really helped us thrive. And it really helped him heal and reach his potential. So I had been blogging all of this information about sensory processing disorder on Facebook, mo mostly just to my family and friends because we were the only people who had ever seen disorder in my circle. No one else knew about it. And I was trying to help them understand our new experiences. And um, people started finding me from all over the world and wanting to follow our page. And uh, after many repeated requests of putting all the information that we had accumulated in one spot, we decided to write the book. So um, it's a pretty unique memoir. It's my experiences as a parent with everything that helped us, but it also has some professional commentary by the occupational therapist that worked with Jacob. So uh, it was quite exciting. I always wanted to write, but I never knew I was going to publish a story about ourselves and my family before I wrote fiction. So <laughs> it's been an adventure. And I th think that's such a cool addition that I was looking at that addition from the OT, kind of her perspective on your son and kind of where they started. I think that kind of sets your book apart, especially. Um, but could you tell us maybe then about sensory processing disorder, maybe what it is for listeners that don't know? Sure. 
Okay, so every person has a sensory system. It's part of your nervous system, and it's how we understand the world around us. So your sensory system takes in all the information from your senses of what's going on in the environment. Your brain organizes it, and it outputs a behavioral response. Most of the time, it's appropriate for whatever the environment is around you. When you have a malfunction of the sensory system, then something's getting mixed up somewhere whether it's a malfunction of your body taking in the information through your senses, it not getting to the brain or it gets to the brain, it gets mixed up or the wrong message gets through and uh, you output inappropriate responses for the environment. So most of the time sensory processing kind of has two sides of a coin. We call them the seekers and the avoiders. So your seekers are the ones that their nervous systems are hyposensitive. So if you think, I love the theory of um, thinking about a bucket. And so the hyposensitive kids, their buckets are only half full and they are like bulldozing through their environment, trying to fill up their buckets so that they get to this just right level so that they can feel calm and regulated and functional. And so these are the kids that are bumpers, crashers, they run, they are loud. They slam doors, they pick up glasses and spill their drink because they can't modulate their force. Um, and then on the swing side, you have the um, avoiders and their sensory buckets are too full all the time. So any little thing can set them over and they're gonna overflow. So these are the kids that are covering their ears because sounds become too loud or they need sunglasses because lights are too bright. They get startled very easily. Um, they are very rigid in their routines and they do not like transitions, they don't like um, surprises. So those are a couple of differences between the two types of sensory processing disorder. My son was definitely the bulldozer seeker type. I love that analogy or comparison because I think that really helps people to understand how some are feeling like they have needs that still need to be met and some are being overwhelmed with you know, things that are in the environment or things that you can't necessarily control unless you know. Yes, and it's, you're not always one or the other, which is that's where it starts getting really confusing to people. So where I said my son was a dominant seeker, that's what he was the majority of the time. But he did have instances um, where he was very hypersensitive to noise. If we were out in crowds, you know, he needed his noise cancellation headphones. And then he would have days where he was super sensitive and clothes would bother him and were cutting out tags out of all of his clothes or just trying to find what feels right for that day because he was so very sensitive. So it, it kind of shifts and ebbs and flows back and forth between those two types. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So can you touch a little bit on the speech and language evaluation that you had, um, because that was before, and then kind of touch on how the speech therapists went about suggesting occupational therapy or red flags that they may have seen? Yeah. Um, okay. So before he was diagnosed with SPD, we did have to push for speech therapy. And this is a mom that was a behavioral therapist and kept taking him to the doctor saying something is off something's not quite right we've got to figure this out they told me it was a discipline issue mm -hmm. and that if i learned how to effective this is the behavioral therapist if i learned how to effectively discipline it would be okay they told me not to compare him to his big sister that girls and boys developed at different rates so this was me pushing and pushing and pushing trying to find 
somebody who could help me with this kid because I knew how to discipline. It wasn't a discipline issue. So I get passionate about that, you know, <laughs> because a whole lot of other parents are in the same boat and that's all the doctors will tell them. So anyway, we pushed for speech because he had really garbled language. Those of us that were closest and lived with him could figure out what he wanted most of the time, but other people, it sounded like he was speaking another language. Mm -hmm. So finally, they gave me um, the referral for speech. Get him into the speech therapist. She worked with him probably for two months and um, he, his speech did slowly start getting better, but he was just, he was wild. And so I'm exhausted sitting in the chair trying to watch them so I can figure out how to help him at home with the speech. And she's got him on an exercise ball. She's pulling out all of these different things to try to keep him, you know, busy and still work on a speech at the same time. And one day she just looked at me and she said, you know, Rebecca, I think he's got some sensory differences and you might need to get him up to occupational therapy for mm -hmm. a, you know, a evaluation. And I had never heard of sensory processing disorder before. And when I had worked with children with autism, I knew there was a sensory component, but I had no idea exactly what that was, what all it entailed, or that it could stand separate from autism. So that was a big shift in my thinking. And so when she um, told me about it, she said, I've got some pamphlets and, that I can copy for you. And that's how she kind of told me. She put information right into the hands. She copied a little pamphlet called, um, it was for sensory seekers and it was called Busy Bees and it could have had Jacob's picture next to it. <laughs> so that's where our journey started. And I always tell people if it was not for the speech path, <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't know when we would have figured things out or when we would have um, been able to help and early intervention is so important so I'm I am forever grateful it to is. for figuring it out absolutely so going off of that what interventions would you say worked for you guys and then kind of snowballing onto that how did that in turn help the speech and language and overall communication for you well, we did um, a whole lot of intervention. We did biomedical and occupational both. Mm -hmm. So when I talk about biomedical, we started meeting with an integrationist that knew how to um, do testing for food allergies, very specific food allergies for very specific deficiencies. It turned out that he was deficient in 14 out of 16 of his major vitamins, minerals, and antioxidants. A whole lot of them were in the in the, uh, the B family that helps control nervous system function. And uh, his food allergies, especially who is allergic to gluten, dairy, and dyes. And when we took him off of gluten, within days, this kid started speaking in full sentences. So if that tells you something about how busy his body was and how he was bombarded with sensory information all the time that he could not make sense of, how in the world could you think to even be able to speak? So when we took all of that out of his system and his body started calming down naturally, some of the speech started coming. So that was a huge improvement. Some of the occupational therapy also improved his speech as well. Um, integrative listening therapies were huge for him. We did two different rounds, one of them regular and one with bone conduction. And it, during the second more intensive round, there was a component of it that really focused on communication and speech and emotional intelligence. And he, he really started paying attention to his surroundings, wanting to build relationships with people. He wanted to read storybooks 
that and started understanding, you know, the language in the storybooks and what was going on in the story and being, you know, interested by it. And then one of the other um, one of the other ones that we did, one of the other interventions was a little SPIO suit. I don't know if y'all ever heard of that, but it's capital S-P-I-O, a SPIO suit. And it's this little um, black lycra type vest that fits under their clothes and it literally hugs their body. So it, it hugged his core and gave him constant proprioceptive input. And that kind of like how the diet worked, it helped calm his body down and calm his nervous system down and freed up the mental space to even be able to work on things like communication. So all of it is interconnected and it's all fabulous. Absolutely. And we have previously done an episode on almost just like an introduction to sensory. So I really like what you said earlier about how I think a lot of people, a lot of therapists even think that automatically with sensory, they think autism. They don't think that it can be separate to that. Oh, well, kids with autism naturally usually have sensory needs, but sensory needs aren't just with kids with autism. And that's really kind of the point we were trying to drive home with our previous episode as well on how important it is for children to have their sensory needs met, especially with a sensory processing disorder, which might not even be on the radar at that point with doctors or with families. Um, So can you give a little more support? I guess you kind of already had, but with that on how important those sensory needs being met really are. It is. It's really important. Um, I love to think about the pyramid of functioning. If you've ever seen a picture of the pyramid of functioning, you've got sensory integration at the bottom and it builds into motor control, and then you build up into, at the top of the pyramid, you've got your cognitive, behavioral, emotional, academic skills. So if you want to improve any of the upper part of the pyramid, which most of the time these kids land in school, right, and they, um, they start sticking out like a sore thumb, and it, they've kind of gotten through the cracks before then, but it really starts in around school age. And if you're wanting to work on behavior, cognitive, uh, the emotional, the behavioral, anything, you've got to start with the base of the pyramid, which is sensory integration. So I'm passionate about getting this information out there that, you know, whether you are diagnosed with a sensory processing disorder, we are all sensory beings. Every single one of us, we have sensory preferences. What we like to do on a Saturday night, whether it's curl up with a book or go out and have fun, you know, so we have these sensory preferences, but where it crosses over is does it affect your functionality? And does it affect your life? So all of us could benefit from understanding our sensory systems better. I understand myself so much better. I understand all my family members so much better when we frame everything within the sensory lens. Yes, that's such a huge point is that everyone has sensory needs because I know I do. And the more I learn about sensory and the more I learn about some of these things, especially with some of my occupational therapist friends who I adore because they have taught me so much about this topic and about sensory and how important it is to the kids that I'm treating. Um, I'm learning a lot about myself as well. So it is very interesting. Um, From the sample that you sent us, which we were so grateful for, thank you. uh, In the section of calling all educators, when you talked about some of the things that educators and therapists could do um, to their classroom or kind of maybe even for therapists to do in their sense, in their sessions to meet sensory needs for children that have them or honestly children in in general. Cause like we said, a lot of children benefit from things like this. 
Yeah, it really becomes about being a detective and figuring out what that individual child needs. You know, are they more a seeker? Are they more an avoider? What are they struggling with? And how can you support, you know, their learning and their comfort level? So becoming a detective and being really sensory smart about how you approach things will definitely help professionals. And mm -hmm. so um, I've been doing actually a few um, online conferences and things with educators trying to help them understand the sensory system and how they can use these um, tips in their classroom, which the book is full of them. But um, briefly, if you kind of have seekers, whether you're in a therapy, you know, client situation or you're a teacher with students, if you have the seekers, alternative seating is really well. So um, exercise balls, letting them stand or lay down versus having to sit in a chair. Um, they make certain types of seating where it challenges their core and they're having to balance while they sit. All of that is going to help the seeker's nervous system get input, but in a quiet, still way where they're not disturbing the rest of the class. Um, if they're chewers, there's special jewelry that you can buy um, online and that's great. Or, you know, you could cut straws in half and let them chew on a straw. So any type of input, you know, the mouth or the body, that's what the seekers are craving. Um, I also love the idea of any heavyweight jobs. So you could ask the kid, you know, to go pick up however many books and carry it down to the office and then clue the office people in, you know, that just accept mm -hmm. the dose, say thank you, you know, it's his heavy work for the day. And then when he needs another dose, you send him back to the office to get his books <laughs> or a little backpack that's weighted. And I know that when you get into school situations, you might need to be checking with your OTs to figure out what's the correct weight for each child. Okay, so that's kind of some sensory things you can do for the seekers. Sensory things you can do for the avoiders would definitely be noise cancellation headphones in the loud areas, um, in the hallways, lunchrooms, things like that, that would probably help them. They, if you remember me talking about how they do not like transitions and being taken by surprise. So a visual schedule is huge for avoiders. Visual schedules can also help seekers to stay on track, you know, because their brain's running a million miles a minute in a hundred different directions, kind of like ADHD kids. So visual schedules help everybody stay on track. But for those avoiders, it really helps them prepare mentally and emotionally for the transition coming. So before you transition, tasks or you move to a different room or whatever it is that would help and then also creating some quiet spaces in your rooms so that those avoiders can sneak away look at a book um, a lava lamp you know anything that kind of is real calming and serene that can help them because remember their buckets are so full <laughs> to spill over all the time that they really need to sneak away recharge their batteries so those are a few tips. I know that I've done several of those in my office. I also have, um, they're called light covers. I'm sure there's like a better, more mm -hmm. correct name for those, but it cuts, out that, lights. Yeah, yeah. it cuts out that horrible fluorescent light. And I also switched to lamps because that's more inviting than again, the harsh um, fluorescent light. But I do have, I have like a wobble stool. I have a balance board where they have to stand if they need that. And that's helpful. I have some exercise balls. I have um, some cushions they can sit on on the ground and they have these, it's not pokey, but like little bumps that uh -huh. a lot of my kids love. Um, and I, I have seen even with kids that I wouldn't have necessarily identified as sensory seeking or you know, that would benefit from that. And they love those also. So I think uh, the alternative seating especially is super helpful. 
Yeah, yes, and absolutely. I, and I was lucky enough to be to have the OTs, occupational therapists, kind of on hand and at my disposable most disposal mm-hmm. in the clinic that I worked at. Um, because it was an outpatient clinic. So there were speech therapists and occupational therapists and physical therapists. So I would just like pull them in and they would teach me all these things that I could try. Um, But I know in a school, sometimes it's not like that. I know that caseloads are stretched really thin. And I know the school that I worked at prior to that, the occupational therapist was across like six or seven different schools and I never really saw her. So I think it's really important to educate yourself and become aware of different things you need to do, especially in a school setting for therapists. Yeah, absolutely. I know, for example, because I'm in an elementary school that's uh, kindergarten through fifth grade and I only see my OT once a week. Mm -hmm. Um, Same with my PT, but she they both always give us, you know, tips and tricks um, of things to do for especially that heavy lifting. So what we usually do is we have some books and exactly like you said, we'll have them walk them down to the office and they usually go with a note card and the note cards in the envelope and the note card will just say like, Oh, so-and-so is here for their heavy lifting break, blah, blah, blah. But a lot of times what they'll do is write another teacher's name on it. If they're on prep or it's during their lunch or they have that free time. And then that student will go to that classroom. So they get more than just like down to the office and back. Cause sometimes that can be kind of quick. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. yeah all really good. great ideas. Yeah, so, that. and I'm, I'm so excited that you all are so far advanced in your sensory knowledge because um, the people that I worked with, you know, <laughs> within the last seven years have not been mm-hmm. except for the OT that really taught me a whole lot of what I know. Right. And, you know, the speech therapist thankfully knew enough to get me into OT, mm-hmm. but we actually tried to have my son go to a private special needs school mm-hmm. that knew how to handle so many special needs, but they could not handle my kid. And I was in there most of the time um, trying to help their behavioral therapist know what to do from the OT side because they didn't have an OT on staff. They only had a speech therapist and they had a behavioral therapist on staff. And so we couldn't pay thousands of dollars you know, to have yeah. to a school where I had to be so involved. Mm-hmm. And so we actually started homeschooling because of it. And that has been um, perfect for my family dynamic mm-hmm. and let him, you know, kind of learn at his own rate. And uh, he's doing really well up in fifth grade now and everything. But I wish I had as many surrounding support, you know, from the other professionals in our life that we ran into. Yeah. Right. And and that's why we feel lucky to, you know, be interviewing you so that hopefully people can listen to this and maybe get some ideas. Um, hopefully moms too, and dads, parents. Um, I know that there's a lot of parents out there very similar to you, Rebecca, who were initially told all of these things that didn't end up working and you really had to kind of fight for your child and be an advocate for your child. And I think that's so important. Um, I also wanted to get a better view of like the timeline, just because I think it's really good for parents to hear. So those parents that maybe have a two or three year old that are really struggling right now and um, maybe need some of those start, start to include some of those sensory things into their everyday, um, or maybe still are just looking for the right path for their child. So you started, how old was your son when he started, I guess, in speech therapy first? He started speech therapy around three years old. Okay. We were in OT by the time he was three and a half. So about six months later, we started OT. Um, it was really rough before that, before we got into OT, once we got into OT and she started teaching me what I could do at home and he started working in his sessions, 
Um, and then of course, coupling in that biomedical was huge. Mm -hmm. We had to get that biology back in whack as much as possible. So yeah. the OT, what we were doing could really stick. Um, so that all started around three and a half, four years old. We phased out of OT when he was about seven. Um, it was great to be able to homeschool through kindergarten because he was still seeing his OT at least twice or three times possibly a week. And we were still doing some of the, we were doing astronaut training at that time, which sounds really funny, but it's a type of spin therapy um, for his vestibular system. He actually didn't have the sense where he got dizzy and that is part of what worked out his dizzy sense. Mm -hmm. uh, so we were doing that. We were doing another one called interactive metronome at the time. So we were doing some really intense OT and we were able to homeschool kindergarten through that. And by the time he started first grade, we were able to come home unassisted by OT and we continued work, um, you know, after first grade. <laughs> Still had a lot of challenges, but um, and you yes. said he's in fifth grade now, right? He's 10 years old and in fifth grade. I do not consider him having sensory processing disorder anymore. He does still have sensory differences, but that goes back to our conversation mm -hmm. that differences does not equal disorder. It is where is that functionality line and does it cross the line? So yes, he still has some sensory differences, but we all do. Mm -hmm. And more than anything, what we work on now is um, ADHD style symptoms where it's just trying, he, he needs a lot of breaks as he does his schoolwork. You know, he can sit and work for set, you know, a period of time and then he has to be able to go and take a sensory break for a while and get his body back regulated before he can come back. So right. we're in a good spot now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, everything has been amazing and we went through everything we really wanted to hear from you. So we appreciate it so much and we appreciate you being here and informing us of, you know, things that we didn't know. We love, we love having this podcast because we feel like we are continuing to learn every time we meet new people and every time we interview new people and having you who, again, we just connected through Facebook by chance is just so cool to have you on here. So we really appreciate it. Yes, I appreciate being here because every time I can reach a new audience, you know, I haven't reached a speech audience before. So yeah. <laughs> that's great to reach the speech audience. And uh, my book title again was Sensational Kids, Sensational Families, Hope for Sensory Processing Differences. Mm -hmm. And it's on Amazon and it is, I have my own website that's sensationalkids, sensationalfamilies.com. So I am happy for anybody to connect with me and ask yes. me more questions. I just, I love, I wrote the book because I wanted to pay information forward so other people didn't have to struggle the way that I struggled. Right. So anybody who wants to reach out, you know, I'm happy to talk to whoever. And it is wonderful. Rebecca sent us, again, thank you for sending us that sample. I remember I texted Rachel after I read it and I was like, I just read the whole thing because I couldn't stop. It was so, yeah. it was so interesting. I loved it. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, you. a lot of really good information in there, guys. All right. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you all. Bye. Yeah, bye. So after talking with Rebecca, we really, I mean, we knew the importance of sensory needs, but Rachel and I got very passionate about it. And um, we reached out to one of my occupational therapy friends, Annalise, who is awesome. I used to work with her when I worked in outpatient clinic. And I just wanted to get a feel for some of the red flags that a speech therapist especially could look for in their sessions. And these would also pertain to parents. 
looking for some red flags that your child might be experiencing at home. So the information she gave me uh, was sensory processing disorder can really be looked at in a bunch of different ways. So you can look at auditory, you can look at uh, tactile, which is feelings. So um, like physically, their touch, visual, it can be something that's a visual stimuli, taste, smell. So this can also pertain to some feeding for some children. Vestibular, which is their balance or kind of their place, um, their vestibular system manages like their balance, dizziness, um, things like that. And then proprioception, which Rachel and I had to do a little bit of researching on because we're not as familiar with it, uh, mm -hmm. but we do hear about it a lot, which is really your body awareness. So um, Rachel, you gave a really good example of what that meant. Yeah. So it's basically your body's ability to sense its location, um, movements and action without consciously thinking about it. So I know this is something that Rebecca had mentioned, but I know I also see this in some of my classrooms that I service are the kids that run to the carpet and then crash down into it. And they're really seeking that sensory, just like Rebecca said, maybe their bucket isn't full and they're trying to fill it up. That's, that's the best example I can. Think yeah, of. no. And I liked that. I thought that was a really good example. Yeah. So I'm just going to run through really quick the list of these red flags that Annalise had sent me. Again, she's an occupational therapist. She works with mostly early intervention kids at the clinic that we work at, but there's also a lot of school age um, kids as well. So she has a lot of experience with this. The first thing that she says to look for is fidgeting. So that can be in a chair, that can be really on the floor, depending on what age your child is, but especially if they're unable to remain seated. I've had a lot of kids that need like those cushions. Rachel, I don't know about you, but like the squishy cushions mm -hmm. that they have to sit on. Um, and I think that just kind of levels their body and gives them that input that they need because a chair is really hard. And not only that, but just being able to stay still for that long. I think yeah. that goes along with it as well. Or another thing that I've used is they're kind of like those workout bands, but they go in like on either leg of the chair. Have yes. you seen those? Yeah. Have, and they can like yeah. fidget with that. I think those help a lot too. Those are really good. Yeah. Um, the next is if they're hyperactive and this just means it kind of goes along with the fidgeting. So they can't keep still or they're very almost hyper all the time. Um, that impulsivity that I think I'm even impulse choices is one of them that she has on the list. So um, they're impulsive with their actions. They're impulsive with their speech a lot. I know that I have some kids that will be working on a task and they'll all of a sudden start talking about what they had for breakfast and we were doing something completely different. So that mm -hmm. impulsivity is something that's, you know, maybe they're not really regulating their emotions well either. And that's something that really pertains to that sensory system as well that we might not always think of. Yeah. And I think something that goes along with that, I mean, you talked about the easily distracted portion, but also the difficulty redirecting them back yeah. to the task or they need frequent reminders or breaks or you know, they just have a difficult time focusing that on attention part of it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The next is displaying negative behavior. So Rebecca talked a lot about this too, um, almost in a sensory overload. So, you know, your child can't, it goes along with a lot of the things we're already saying. So your child maybe can't sit for periods of time without getting up and expressing themselves in anger, either mm -hmm. whether it be screaming or throwing themselves on the floor or running into a wall. Unfortunately, these are there are a lot of negative behaviors that children with sensory processing disorder 
experience because they just are so overstimulated and they aren't having their sensory needs met. And unfortunately, a lot of time that comes out in negative behaviors. So it could also be um, injuring themselves or others. Um, there's a lot of things that that could occur in. Yeah. I think that's the portion that Rebecca was referring to when yes. the doctor said it was a parenting right. issue or a discipline issue. So that can really present itself in kind of interesting ways like that. And it makes it really hard for the parent and hard for the therapist working because it's hard to get things done, obviously, when we're yeah. having those negative behaviors. Another thing is slumped posture in chairs. So that kind of goes along um, maybe with their body awareness. So not having, you know, appropriate posture or appropriate sitting position. Another is being clumsy. So this goes with that proprioception, I believe. So Mm -hmm. tripping in the hallway, bumping into walls, slamming doors, um, or closing them, you know, aggressively loud footsteps, just overall uncoordinated gross motor movements. And we haven't talked a lot about gross versus fine motor, but, um, gross movement is gross motor movement, I'm sorry, is essentially just big movements. So with your arms and legs running, walking, as opposed to fine motor movements, which is just like putting pieces together, um, puzzles, stuff like that. So Mm -hmm. if they're maybe just clumsy in a, for lack of a better word, they just don't have great body awareness. Um, I know we've seen a lot of kids like that. Yeah. And then another is avoiding movement equipment. So that gravitational insecurity. So let's say that they are um, on a swing. So let's say you're in a clinic and you, or I think schools a lot of times have swings too in your Mm -hmm. sensory rooms. Um, Let's say they avoid the swing. They can't handle that movement. They might have some sort of, sort of vestibular or proprioception difficulty managing where they're at and kind of um, coordinating those movements in relation to their body being in space. So that that's a really hard one. Um, another one is invading other people's space. So maybe, and this goes along with speech a lot because, mm-hmm. and we've co-treated, I've co-treated with a lot of older kids that have a hard time with this. So you're invading other people's space. It might not just be a social awareness issue. It might also be a sensory issue. Maybe they they really can't regulate themselves when they are going up and communicating with people. So this is an area where it would be really great, especially with older kids, to have some sort of OT speech co-treating session because mm-hmm. you can target this goal, um, invading other people's space or appropriate body spatial awareness. You can... Uh, um, kind of target that in two ways, both socially and then sensory based. Yeah. And I just wanted to say really quickly that sometimes this can present as like a social language or a pragmatic deficit when really, I mean, it is that because obviously there are those boundaries that you're crossing when you're invading someone's space or getting really close to talk to them. But if you're noticing any of these things, it never hurts just to have your OT take a look. Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely. It, it doesn't mean that you're recommending services. And obviously it's worth reaching out to the parents and saying, Hey, I'm seeing these things. Is this something you'd be open to or having them sign a consent for the OT to screen them or whatever your school's process is or clinics process is? But I do think it's, it's worthwhile to, um, make that a priority for sure. Yes, Definitely. The next recommendation of a red, well, not recommendation, but red flag that Annalise talks about is fidgeting with clothing excessively um, or decreased tolerance for wearing clothing. So this happens a lot. Uh, I've seen that a lot with kids and a lot of the moms that I talk to say they have to 
order specific types of materials that their clothes are made of, or they have to cut off tags, or they can't wear jeans that are really tight around their belly. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of that has to go in with that, those tactile feet cues. They're having a hard time regulating that sensory aspect. Yeah. I just wanted to say one other thing is as far as the fidget with clothing excessively part that can also present as the kid that's like constantly chewing on their sleeve or bites holes in the sleeve like long sleeves of their shirts that's why um rebecca had mentioned that jewelry or yes. chewable jewelry um which is essentially just a little rubber thing i know they have ones that are legos or um, basketballs or a little shark's tooth and it looks like a necklace but it's just something that they can fidget on and nibble on or put in their mouth and it's appropriate as opposed to chewing on sleeves and stuff like that. Yeah. So I think that even goes along in its own red flag category. So mm -hmm. chewing on things, because I know a lot of kids that need that stimulation in their mouth are yeah. having some of those, the hard time regulating. Yeah. So another one is refusing to touch different textures. So this happens with water. It can happen with glue, sand. We talk a lot in our sensory, our previous sensory episode about how all of these can be incorporated into therapy sessions. So some of these really great sensory bins, right? You have beans in them, you have sand, but some kids are sensitive to those feelings and maybe they can't handle those textures. So that's something to definitely look out for. I had a kid once that those, I forget what they're called called Rachel, but those little like water tablets that we love, the little, um, oh, Orbeez, Orbeez. Right? Yeah. Yes. I, I had a kid that hated those. Like he couldn't handle touching mm -hmm. them. So whereas Rachel and I are both like, Oh, we love touching them. Like that's mm -hmm. such a stimming thing for us. He couldn't handle it. So you really have to be careful with some of those when you're incorporating some sensory feelers because some kids might not like it and they might not be able to handle those textures. Yeah. We've talked about this a lot, the sensitivity to certain lighting. So, you know, putting some um, blocks over there, those um, light blockers. Light covers, yeah. yeah, the light covers that you can get on Amazon, especially for those fluorescent lights if you're in a school or some sort of hospital setting. Mm -hmm covering ears with increased noise. Those who work with kids with autism or kids with other disabilities have seen this, I'm sure, the oversensitivity to sound. So they're covering their ears because they know they can't handle the sound. Um, Rebecca talked about having uh, headphones. So um, those noise canceling headphones can be really helpful. I know when I worked in the district, we had some on hand for kids that weren't necessarily theirs, but if they needed it, they could use it. So that's something important, I think, to have on hand if you need it, because there could be a fire drill or there mm -hmm. could be sirens that happen and it's really out of your control. So unfortunately, sometimes you have to be pre prepared for those kind of things. Mm -hmm. Another thing she says is being oblivious to other things going on in the room. So, you know, maybe they are so they're focused on something sensory based that they're really interested in and they have no idea that these people are walking in the room or that I've had kids when I co-treat actually that the OT is working with them first and I walk into the room and literally sit down next to them and they have no idea that I have even walked into the room. So, um, kind of being, aware of things happening, not only to their body, but also outside of their body or in their eye gaze. If they're having a hard time, um, kind of noticing those things that might be a sensory difficulty. Another is frequent accidents that pertain to potty training and toileting. So if your child is having a hard time get being potty trained or a hard time going to the bathroom, that could also be a difficulty with that sensory processing. 
Another is sleeping difficulties. So if your child is getting up a lot in the middle of the night, if they're sleeping too much, you know, that has both, both sides of the coin, I think there with the sleeping difficulties. I have several students that are like that. They'll get up in the middle of the night, they'll be up for a couple hours or they're up at like five to start their day. And I think, I mean, obviously if you're tired later on in the day, that's just going to kind of be like a snowball effect and make everything more difficult. So I know that is a constant concern for some of my parents. Definitely. And it messes with the schedule because kids are creatures of habit. And if they Mm -hmm. don't have a good sleeping schedule, they're not going to have a good daytime schedule. Mm -hmm. And that's really going to be detrimental to their academics and everything else. Another is bathing issues. So if they really have a hard time with water, they hate being in the bath. That doesn't necessarily mean they have sensory processing disorder, but they might have sensory difficulties. And I want to make sure we make that point that, you know, all of this, if your child has one or two or even three of these, it doesn't mean they have sensory processing disorder, but they could have sensory difficulties. So in the bath, especially, I know there's a lot of moms that, you know, the kids hate bath time. And if you listen to some of our previous episodes, we give you some really good ideas to Mm -hmm. work with on bringing your child in the bathtub. Um, But if they have a hard time with that, that could definitely be a difficulty there. And that is something, oops, sorry. That is something that Rebecca also mentioned was Mm -hmm. in the beginning, if you listen to her interview and then even more, if you go to purchase her book and read it, you hear that she in the beginning is talking about how her son has sensory processing disorder. And then towards the end, and in our interview, she mentioned it, that now he's in fifth grade and she considers him to have sensory differences Mm -hmm. as opposed to sensory processing disorder. So I think that's a really good point that you just made, Claire, was to make Mm -hmm. sure that people understand there is a difference there. And obviously we can't you know, speech therapists don't diagnose. And that's something that should be talked about with an occupational therapist or your pediatrician, but that is really important to keep in mind. Definitely. And like Rebecca said, sometimes we're the first person to see this child. So Mm -hmm. we need to be aware of these things because although like Rachel said, we don't diagnose, but we might be the first person that notices these things because we're the first person working with them other than their parents. So the last and final thing, Annalise, bless her heart, she gave me so many things. The last thing that she talked about was being a picky eater. So I know Annalise especially does a lot with feeding. Um, OT and speech definitely overlap on the feeding therapy. So, um, you know, speech therapists aren't the only feeding specialists. There's a lot of OTs that do feeding therapy as well. And if the child is a picky eater, I know that's always in our case history forms when we talk mm-hmm. to the parents is, okay, tell me about your child's diet. Are they picky? What kind of food do they eat? Those food aversions and texture aversions to food could really be a sign of that sensory processing difficulties or sensory processing disorder. Yeah. I think, and that can start kind of young too. And I think a lot of times parents have difficulty deciding if it's a true difference or disorder, or if it's just part of the age and being picky. Um, I know like with Henry, Henry's only 11 months old, but when we went to the pediatrician for his nine month appointment, the pediatrician was asking how it's going. And I was mentioning, you know, that he's not a fan of some textures. And she had just mentioned that if it's still an issue around 12 months, that it might be worth looking at, um, Mm -hmm for occupational therapy to get him on the right track for that. But I know they say you're supposed to try foods like, I don't know, 20 times before they get used to that texture or taste or things like that. So it does take a lot of work too. Well, and 
I think that's so important though, to be open to receiving help. Oh yeah. Because like you just said, Rachel, okay. So you go to an occupational therapist just to get Henry some exposure to Mm -hmm. those different foods. And I think we need to be okay with sending our kids to therapy and even as speech therapists being okay with that. So I think that's amazing. And I think it's really important to be okay with and not view it as a bad thing. You're just making it easier and better for your child. Right. Exactly. So that was awesome. There's so many tips there. So many things to look for. As far as things that I know have worked for me, I personally have a little, um, it's called like a take a break bin in my office and it's filled with different sensory things. So there are ooze tubes in there, which have slime that you, when you tilt over it all drips to one side, they have those little, I have those little, um, water and oil, you know, that drip with the Mm -hmm. different colors. Those are awesome. These things called monkey noodles, which are essentially just like a big stretchy fidget. I have the fidget spinners. I have tons of things like that, but I also try and build in movement breaks. So I know I'm not with my kids for extended period of t- period of times like teachers are or parents are, but sometimes 20 or 30 minutes is way too much, especially for my little ones mm-hmm. to just sit and do an activity. So I have balance boards. I have um, exercise balls to sit on. I have wobble stools. Um, sometimes my students just choose to stand up. We play hopscotch. I know I gave some ideas like that during our EET episode to get them up and moving. So, I mean, I think it's worth looking at tons of different options and Mm -hmm. outlets and seeing what works because you can try a million things and they're not going to work. And then you try something new and it might work. And it changes everything. Right. I love the idea of a balance ball, especially if you find yourself, um, a new virtual learner and Mm -hmm. you are learning from home and you have set up your child's desk, but you know, it's, it's new for them having a ball as a chair instead of a chair. Awesome. I know there's, there were a lot of PTs and OTs that did that even just sitting at their desk because it just gave them more input. It helps your posture as well. And for kids, it really gives them that ability to um, not just be on that flat surface, but to have some sensory input while they're sitting. So I think that's a really good idea for something at home. Um, Something I've been doing, and I know we've I know we've mentioned this is go noodle. Mm -hmm. This is how I've been implementing the sensory and movement breaks. Like Rachel was saying into my telepractice sessions. So go noodle is awesome. Mm -hmm. It, it separates each video by category. So you can look for attention based videos. You can look for calming based videos. You can look for movement and exercise. So whatever level the child you're working with is at and whatever you're trying to support. So maybe they really got to get the wiggles out. So they got to do a dancing video. Maybe they're too hyper and they need to be tamed down a little Mm -hmm. bit. So you need to do some stretching or some deep breathing and it has videos for that. And they're fun and geared toward kids of all ages. It's awesome. If you haven't been on go noodle, check it out because it's the best, but that's really how I've been incorporating into my telepractice sessions because it's hard to do it when you're just over the screen. Yeah. And I also found this really awesome article, which we will link on our website under this episode's links, but the title or purpose of it is 50 easy sensory activities to do at home. So these are things that 
um, parents can facilitate. These are things as a speech therapist you can suggest. Um, I'll just run through some, but the awesome part is a couple of these require links because they're different things to make and it's all on the same document. So one is ball matching, which Claire just mentioned that one of her students couldn't touch those little orbies or beads or sand things like that got really overwhelmed. The ball matching activity actually has you put them in balloons and then tie off the balloon and then feel the balloon and feel the differences. Maybe one has rice in it, maybe one has beans, maybe one has Orbeez. So maybe if you know getting your hands sticky and wet is not as a no-go, that might be a good activity. Mm -hmm. Other ones on here are making cloud dough, um, playing with packing peanuts, or popping bubble wrap. I know is a huge one for some of my kids. Anytime I get a package with that, I just bring it straight into school and they <laughs> love it. Um, finger painting, even activities like making a recipe. We talked about that in an early episode too, is different things you can do in the kitchen and having them mix the bowl or pour things in um, that can help with like bringing them down. Maybe like Claire said, if they're really up high with a lot of energy, um, ice treasure, which I thought was really cool. You basically just take like a big Tupperware container, fill it with water and put some different objects in there, freeze it. And then they have to like chisel them out, which is some of that, like not like heavy lifting, but like work to get, the little treasures out, which I thought was really cool. They talk about working with shaving cream, um, different water beads, taste testing activities, which I thought was cool for so maybe fun. we're trying to introduce new things and you pair it with a, de you pair a desired food with an undesired food, which can be helpful. Um, let's see. Rainbows. That's so and, many though. Yeah. That's um, really cool. Shadow play where you make like shadow puppets on the walls. I know that was something that we had mentioned was like overbearing light. So we will link that. Take a look. There are tons of things on here. And if you guys are listening and you know any awesome activities, especially maybe that you use for telepractice or teletherapy, DM us and we will put those on our story and share those out because we want everyone to have these tools to succeed. Yeah. And we'll even link them on our website too. So please let us know because we're trying to find new things as well since we'll be doing telepractice yeah. too. And it's really fun and we got to <laughs> adapt to it. But yeah. That pretty much wraps up everything we had to talk to you guys about. We do want to make sure you know that our shirt campaign is going on. It's those super cute white t-shirts and there's also the long sleeve shirt option that says your words matter with the rainbow and donations will be made from these um, shirt proceeds to the Children's Lebanon Crisis Relief Fund. And we feel very passionately about this. Rachel and I really wanted to do something to raise money for this cause um, with how with that tragedy that happened in Lebanon. So please help us help them because they really need our support right now and you get a cute shirt out of it so yeah and thank you to all the people that have already purchased yes, there are tons so of you happy. and we're so happy and thank you guys again for joining us for this episode as always you can find me rachel on instagram at super sweet speech and if you or anyone you know is in need of speech therapy in southeast michigan 
feel free to email me at speechissupersweet at gmail.com. You can also follow the Let's Talk About Speech podcast on Facebook and Instagram. So make sure you give those a like and a follow. And don't forget to check out our website, letstalkaboutspeech.com. And you can find me, Claire, on Instagram at kindly underscore speech or my Facebook page, Kindly Speech LLC. And if anyone in Virginia or Ohio is in need of speech teletherapy, please let me know. My email is kindlyspeechllc at gmail.com. And then Rachel and I also still have the email for the podcast. If you want to talk to us that way, let's talk about speech podcast at gmail.com. Email us with questions, suggestions, um, any feedback you guys have. We would love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening. This was such a fun episode and we will hear from you guys soon. Bye.